Hello and welcome to Crosstalk, where all things are considered. I'm Peter Lavelle. Are we witnessing the end of globalization as we've known it for about the last half century? It would certainly seem so. The West's ability to shape the world in its own image also appears to be on the wane. As a result, should we expect new regional and block globalizations? Crosstalking Globalization, I'm joined by my guest Arthur Clero in Toronto. He's a liberty advocate and a freelance editor. In Washington, we have Thomas Pally. He is founder of the Economics for De Democratic and Open Societies Project. And in Bristol, we cross to Jonty Brower. She is a spokesperson for the World Anti-Imperialist Forum, as well as author of Drive to War Against Russia and China. All right, Crosstalk rules in effect. That means you can jump in anytime you want, and I always appreciate it. Arthur, let me go to you first here. It didn't get a lot of coverage in Western media, but there was a really big meeting between the Chinese leader and uh, uh, in Riyadh with the, uh, the Saudi leader. Uh, and if you compare and contrast with what it looked like compared to Biden, Biden got a, you know, a bump um, uh, shake and the red carpet came out for the Chinese leader. Huge deals being made, energy deals, infrastructure deals, the works here. Um, this is very indicative of how the world is changing, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Absolutely. Sometimes I, I worry that the Western world is so caught up in its own world, for lack of a better term. But it's that, true. Uh, that we're not noticing what's going on around the world. Um, China, for the last, better part of the last 10 years, if not more, has been an expanding uh, quasi-colonial power. And it's projecting more and more of that power around the world, including in, in the Western world. Here in Canada, the United States, and elsewhere. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely. Uh, Thomas, I'm going to you. I mean, the, the globalization, when it was first conceived, it was quite popular and, and, and people were quite supportive of it because it will make the world like the West. Well, that's not really panning out the way they thought it would. And as a matter of fact, there's a lot of dissolution with it, even in the West. I mean, the U.S. seems to be moving away from it and creating its own block, hence what I had to say at the end of my introduction. You have a Eurasian block, an American block that is uh, uh, subject Gates Europe, we're seeing it. Uh, we're, we're seeing it falling apart. Fragment. Go ahead, Thomas. Well, uh, let me just uh, backtrack a little to what Arthur just said. I, I don't see China as a colonial power at all. I, I see China looking after its national interest, and it has a national interest in uh, in having access to energy. It has a national interest in secure sea lanes. It has a national interest because it's a massive, uh, massive manufacturing power in being able to trade. Uh, and I see that is really what is driving uh, China's global engagement. Uh, of course, it also has a, a national interest in, in, as, as a regional superpower uh, immediately in, in the South China Sea, and of course, as, as a major uh, powerful nation, as having a respected position in the global system. And I suppose that, that that's really the, the tension between the United States and China. Uh, the United States is trying to deny China all of that. Um, as regards uh, Saudi, the, the Saudi visit, yes, this is, this, this is very interesting because Saudi Arabia has been uh, the uh, linchpin of uh, U.S. power in the Middle East. And I think one of the interesting things, and I think you can begin to connect some of the dots here, uh, some of the stuff that the U.S. has done over the last 15 years is beginning to backfire now. 
particularly re regarding using its power to bully uh, other countries. Uh, and of course, you know, we've seen this in, in the, uh, the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the, the, the way that the U.S. confiscated Russia's foreign reserves, the attempt by the Western powers to undercut Russian, uh, Russia's economy, most recently by this oil cap uh, machination. Um, Saudi Arabia reads all these things as well, and it sees that these same tools can be applied against it. Exactly. And I would say India. In it, India, that, that Modi is seeing the same. I, in Latin America, I suspect all the Latin American leaders are seeing the same. Everyone begins to connect the dots, except the folks in the U.S. who are well, uh, that, in, it, in it, imperial it, narcissism. You're absolutely right. It's backfire. Jyoti, let me go to you. I mean, but it, it's, it's more pernicious than that, because if you don't want to play our game, we're going to punish you. We will even punish so-called allies, okay? This is very interesting as well. And there's the pushback that we have seen, maybe not from allies, but from from the rest of the world is de-dollarization. Now, once that happens, then global hegemony comes to an end. Jyoti, go ahead. Well, definitely what we're seeing is the, the waning of US global hegemony, which, let's face it, really um, took on a new aspect with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, that the, the sort of balancing act between the socialist world and the capitalist imperialist world kind of collapsed and we had this rampant imperialism, which was like, right, we can loot everywhere. We can wage war against everyone who stands against us. Everybody better get in line or we'll be invading you and, and stealing your wealth. And people felt that they had to, countries felt they had to get in line. They weren't strong enough to stand alone against US bullying. You know, look how difficult it's been for countries like North Korea, Cuba, Iran, who've been under sanctions regimes for decades you know, without much relief and how hard it was for them, particularly in the period after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So this kind of expansion of the aggressiveness and, and, and kind of rampant uh, looting of the globe of the imperialists after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, lasted a certain amount of time, but it couldn't last forever. It hasn't lasted forever. And now we're seeing the rise of the independent world uh, and what countries are finding is the key to their independence is getting together. The only way you can stand up against the power of the US, its, en its armies, you know, its economies, its, its allies, is to stand together. And that's the attraction now of, uh, of blocks like the BRICS and the SCO, that they're offering the ability to trade in exactly. a beneficial manner. They're taking away this dynamic of servant and master. You know, you know, Arthur, it's, it's, it's very interesting. We had the German chancellor a, a couple news cycles ago saying that after the conflict is over in Ukraine and Russia loses, he's saying this, they will have to reassess trade with Russia. But that is such an arrogant point of view. I mean, maybe the Russians don't want to deal with you anymore, okay? I mean, again, it's this kind of, this, this imperial mindset is that you want to be with us, you want to be like us, and you want to hold our values. But every, with every passing day, every single one of those propositions is false. Arthur. Well, I think I think what that points to, similar to what has been mentioned by the last two, two speakers here as well, is that there's this hubris that has come with power. And I, like, for example, with the United States and its, and its uh, inter interjection of certain values around the world, in the beginning, I believe that actually did start with some 
some measure of genuine intent to do good, to you know, help people have democracy, help them have better lives, that sort of thing. But I think that that very quickly, especially post-Soviet Union, um, became a point where power corrupted, and power is corrupting absolutely. As for as for Europe and the United States, and I guess the Western world in general, they've undermined themselves at home, they've undermined themselves abroad, and yet somehow at certain levels they still see themselves as master of the world. And in Canada, there's a there's a famous hockey player who made his um, reputation off of skating where the puck was going to be rather than where it was or where it is. And it feels like those same elites are playing where it was or is rather than where it's going to be. That's, very, uh, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Uh, but, Th Thomas, you know, I think the, the, this, this whole uh, mindset about Western globalization uh, is reflected in Joseph Burrell's uh, uh, blogs, you know, where Europe is the garden and everywhere else is the jungle. I mean, if that isn't a neocolonial uh, outlook, I don't know what is. Thomas. No, you, 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 Peter. Peter, you're absolutely right. Uh, there, there, there is a, and I, and I like the expression that the previous author just used: hubris. Uh, pride goes before a fall, and and that that has sort of what has happened to uh, the, the the U.S. project. Which, um, and I and I agree. Initially, initially, it, there, there were some good intentions there, but uh, the United States has been uh, captured. I mean, on both sides of our political aisle, by this neocon view. That the U.S. is to be globally hegemonic, and, and that is, um, for me, looking at it, we don't want to be too d definitive about these things. Who's good? Who's bad? It, on all sides, it's always a mix. But it violates the most fundamental principle of the global order that made all else possible, and that goes back to the Westphalian. Uh, principle from from the 1648 Treaty of Westphalia that other countries don't interfere in the internal right. affairs of others, and for all its screaming about uh, uh, Russia and China intervening in the United the affairs of the United States, the U.S. is the global champion of uh, interference, and and now it's actually pushing it to the point of belligerence and war. And, and this is the, the root cause of the problem. Uh, the U.S. is in, insistent on being globally hegemonic, not allowing space for other countries to develop. They are going to develop along their own particular paths, um, both politically and economically. Um, we, we should be uh, the best thing we can do to encourage these values of democracy and human rights is to help these countries. Uh, these well, things do not. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, Tom, but Thomas, you know, democracy and human rights. If I go to Jolte right now, that's just a political cudgel. I don't. They don't believe in it. They don't believe in democracy in their own countries. Go ahead and. No, I think I think it's more complicated than oh, that. Oh, okay. We'll get back. We'll, we'll get to. Both. We'll, we'll okay. get it in the second half of the program. Jolte, you want to field that? I mean, I think you're absolutely right, Peter. The imperialist words have always differed greatly from their deeds. They say these these words to make a veneer. They talk about civilization, culture, human rights, democracy. They've been talking like that for 200 years. You know, many countries have suffered, nevertheless, from their domination and control. You know, over the last century, many of them fought back against that, you know, but in recent decades, it's been harder because, as I said, the collapse of the USSR shifted the balance of forces in the world. But the fact is that imperialism seeks domination, not democracy. It doesn't matter what it says, look at what it does. You know, and we have to we have to recognize that. Let's not forget 
that this whole notion of a rules-based order was invented when the imperialists decided to launch their aggressive illegal war against Yugoslavia. That's right. Didn't have All right, Jyoti, hold, hold that thought. Hold that thought. We have to go to a hard break. And after that hard break, we'll continue our discussion on globalization. Stay with RT. Welcome back to Crosstalk, where all things are considered. I'm Peter LaBelle. To remind you, we're discussing globalization. Okay, let's go back to Arthur in, in Toronto. The linchpin, the, list, the, the linchpin of the West's uh, um, vision of globalization is through financial institutions. Now, you know, you, you have Venezuela's gold frozen, stolen from it. Uh, Russia's foreign reserves stolen from it. I mean, what kind of rules-based order is that? I mean, you know, what about the rule of law? This is why, as Jyoti pointed out on the first part of the program, other countries are getting together and saying, we don't need their institutions. We can have our own institutions. We can go around them. Okay, and and they, they the West uses its financial institutions as a cudgel. Well, if you can get around it, then fine. Okay, and then you have not just you know trade, but you have free trade where everyone benefits from it. Okay, the, the West is destroying itself and its own institutions. Arthur. Yeah, there's a, a great book called Exit, Voice, and Loyalty that covers a lot of the, the interpersonal dynamics that go on with this sort of thing. But really, it's you can't set a set of rules and then go back on it whenever you want. This is an issue that's being faced domestically in most of the Western world as well, where there's an expectation of a certain rule of law and a way that things are done. But depending on your politics, depending if it's in favor or not, uh, you get different treatment. And we're obviously seeing that on a world stage as well. Right? There's, you know, if, if Russia's going the wrong way, hey, all bets are off. We can change the rules whenever we want. And you can't have a stable rules-based system that way. Uh, Tom, Thomas, basically the same question to you, because uh, if, the, if these institutions work against the national interests of other countries, they have every incentive to walk away from it. And they can, because new institutions are being created here. And, and as I started out with the example with Saudi Arabia, I mean, they were in the pocket of the Americans since the 1930s. And to have this happen right now, they, they want to have control of their sovereignty. And it's sending a message to other countries in the world as well, is that you don't need Western institutions. The problem is, is that, as Jyoti's pointed out, the West will use its own military institutions if you defy them. Go ahead, Thomas. Well, that, that's, that, that's all true. Um, I, I, I can't argue with that. Uh, that, that the, the, um, uh, I, I agree with what you've said and what the other speakers have said. There are major challenges, though. I, I don't think it's as easy as you make it out. It's, one can put in place uh, new currencies or new um, mechanisms for exchange but countries will be looking to have, how do they store value? If you run a uh, balance of payment surplus, you need to be able to park that uh, uh, finance somewhere for a while and then have access to it again in future. And so that's going to be a political problem for countries like China, Russia, et cetera, how to build confidence in their own systems. And, and that's why I, I was saying how, how complicated this issue is. The West is overreaching. Uh, China and Russia are going to have challenges of their own to build confidence in their systems. And, and, and that's something that I would like to hear more of from Russia and China, how they're going to do that. 
I well, think it'd be very interesting. Well, actually, I think they are doing it right now. When uh, Jyoti, when Russia was thrown out of the Swiss system, there there, there was a uh, a burgeoning one here, one already existing in China, and it is it is it's expanding now. It's going to take a long time, but it's it's already happening. It, these making these things are yes, they're difficult, but if you put time and effort into them, resources they will work, and there's an incentive to make them work for sure. Go ahead and Bristol. Agreed. Agreed. There's absolutely an incentive to make them work because what people are realizing is there is no way to coexist on terms of mutual respect with imperialist powers. They want total subordination uh, or, or, you know, or it's war. And there isn't an in-between. So they, what people have learned to understand is there is no rules-based order. There's the law of the jungle. And the law of the jungle is the law of might is right. You know? And so that's why they... People have been making these moves to stand together economically as well as militarily. It's their only chance of retaining independence and self-determination. There is no other way to do it. You know, these moves, the USA has got used to being able to dictate to everyone. It didn't stop to think about the consequences of its actions. It can't really. It's, it is impelled by its, its own, you know, uh, uh, logic. But those moves towards financial warfare against Russia and China over the last decade have, as you rightly pointed out, Peter, have forced those countries to slowly and steadily start to reduce their vulnerabilities to US financial control, because they knew if they didn't, they were going to be destroyed. Yeah. I mean, Arthur, I think future historians will marvel at how the Europeans have surrendered their sovereignty, um, um, re even rejected their own national interests. I mean, again, you know, you know, what trade with Russia? Well, maybe Russia doesn't want to trade with Europe anymore. They're unreliable partners. They don't keep their deals. They, they, somebody blew up those pipelines. Somebody did. And there's nobody, nobody in the West is particularly interested in it. Why would Russia, China or any other major power want to deal with people that don't keep their word? They're they're just simply dishonest when it comes to exchange. Arthur. Well, this is the massive strategic blunder that the West has has done. It's just it's it's a little bit baffling to, to try to understand why. Um, there's there's this time over the last few years where there was an opportunity to bring Russia into the fold to strategically hedge against some of the rising powers uh, from a Western perspective. Um, and instead of that, it's like we entered a new century and a new way of doing things in so many other ways, but kept our strategy from the Cold War. And obviously there's complexity to this, but it's it's baffling to me why this is the case uh, for both Europe and the United States. Yeah, but, but Thomas, I think it's ideologically driven because neoliberalism doesn't like to compromise. You know, I mean, I kind of grew up, you know, I'm OK, you're OK, I'm going to do my thing, you're going to do your thing and we'll manage it. Neoliberalism doesn't work that way. You, you must submit. That is the problem here. Yes, it's an uncompromising ideology. I, I do think that Western Europe is really the key here. Uh, it, it, it is baffling what has happened to the centrist positions in, uh, in Western Europe. I, I always think of Western Europe and Russia as being uh, an economic marriage made in heaven. Russia has uh, resources. Uh, needs capital. Russia has some technology. Western uh, U U Western Europe has capital and technology and needs resources. This is the, the really the basis for a, 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 a true economic alliance. But that's what that's what I, Washington didn't want I to agree. have happen. That, that, that was just the point I was going to get okay. to. That 
Washington has never wanted that to happen. And that's indeed why they, even though they paid lip service to Gorbachev's vision, they were never going to allow Gorbachev's vision to happen. Now, the, the question is, why has Western Europe, uh, Western European politicians failed so comprehensively here? And by the way, in the course of failing, I think they've set Western Europe up for a tremendous amount of economic and political trouble in the coming decade. Uh, my fear is that the center will collapse in Western Europe, and then you'll have a choice between the left and the right. I would prefer that we would go in the left direction, but my fear is the right is going to win out. Uh, and that would be a, 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 a terrible step back. Now, for Russia and China, they don't really care who wins out. They would have liked to have dealt with the sensible center. But once the sensible center uh, cheats on them and turns against them aggressively, then they'll deal with whoever they have to. So I think Western Europe is going to be the most interesting point of a political and economic conflict in the coming decade. Jyoti, isn't it interesting, you know, where the West says it projects uh, prosperity and security and itself now is the, 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 uh, the poor region of the world, okay? It's going in the wrong direction, while most of the other parts of the world are going, advancing, working together, as you pointed out. The thing is, the rest of the world working together is precisely what's undermining Europe's, Western Europe, the imperialist Europe's ability to have their stability and prosperity, right? One rested on the other. You know, why was Europe complicit with the USA for so long? Because it saw its best interest as being a junior partner in this hegemonic rule of the world than in, um, you know, trying to, to trade separately as it was. It wasn't strong enough after World War II for European powers to be, to be a power on their own. You know, the idea of them making a partnership with Russia did always, always make the USA nervous uh, because that's a potential ability then for a power to be strong enough to question yep. and threaten the dominance of the USA. But the problem for the Western Europeans is they wanted a Russia that was subservient, not a partner. That's, the, that's the how imperialism works. They wanted Russia's resources. They wanted its military power, its technological base, its agriculture, but they wanted to just take it. They didn't want to, to join and share the spoils, share the loot. There's too many Russians to, you know, to, to share all that out with. And fundamentally, I think, you know, that's where they've been, they've been sort of led by the USA, by the nose, you know, into the situation. But it's all actually driven by the fact that the capitalist economy and the world is in crisis. There's this desperate drive to, to shore up hegemony, to find profits at the expense of other people. And Europe right now is suffering a boomerang effect from the hubris with which it went into the economic war against Russia. They thought they would bring Russia to its knees in a few weeks. They failed. And, and uh, Arthur, as a result, the, san the sanctions that have come out of Western capital in the, in, at the end have sanctioned their own people, okay? I live here in Moscow. We don't feel the sanctions the way Western medium claims. It's not true. It's simply not true. Difficulties, yes, but that's true. Difficulties create challenges and new solutions, and, I, and that's what I want. I want. I want Russia to be cut off from the West Completely, okay? Because that's where the problems of the world are. Arthur. There's a, uh, to also address what was, what was just said about, um, about imperialism there, I think more to the point, the problem for the West right now is we have this Lysenkoist ideological possession in all our institutions. And anyone who speaks out or stands against that possession is called. Yep. Meaning that we have a very, um, 
monolithic way of looking at things, and it's not a very good one. The West's prosperity came very much from the ability to open up markets, to have certain amounts of freedom, to stick with a certain rule of law, as we discussed earlier. And in the vein of this ideology now, we are destroying all of that to produce some sort of utopia. Now, every time I've seen that sort of utopian vision or read about that sort of utopian vision in the past, it's never ended well. And we can see already that for the West, it's going badly, very badly. Well, I mean, Arthur, it's, isn't it really wait, isn't it really curious? It's the West that's the most ideological part of the world. The rest of the world has figured out that pragmatism is the best way forward, but not the West. Yeah. And, and, and that's why their whole ideology is short-circuiting against them and makes them very dangerous for the rest of us. I'm sorry, everybody. That's all the time we have. I want to thank my guests in Washington, Bristol, and in Toronto. And I want to thank our viewers for watching us here at RT. See you next time. Remember, Crosstalk Rules.